The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Warm welcome all to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us. Also great to have my co-hosts, Elliot Turner and Phil Ordway. We have a great discussion ahead. Phil, let's uh, get started with you. Thanks, John. So as we're recording this here in the first week of July 2022, I thought I'd take a a chance to do what I'm doing uh, in my own practice at work and reflect on where things have gone here in the first six months of the year. Six months is obviously an arbitrary and very short period of time, even though in the last six months, I'm sure we all feel like we've aged in dog years, which is going back to prior discussions, something we probably all feel like over the last couple of years, feels like a couple of decades squeezed into the last 24 or 36 months. But anyway, uh, as, as Elliot and John and I were just discussing offline, the first six months of the year, you could make an argument were the worst first half of any year in most people's lifetime and probably going back even further than that. And if you take the 60-40 portfolio, which I mentioned in our in our discussion is probably the worst performance it's ever had. And it, you know, just to kick off the year, right, this has been pretty painful across most asset classes. The S&P 500 was down about 20%. The Russell 2000 was down more than that. Investment grade bonds, really all bonds were down quite a bit as well. That's that's a unique feature. Investment grade bonds, the aggregate index was down 11%. It's pretty unusual to have bonds down that much ever, let alone when stocks are down a bunch as well. And so if you didn't own all oil, there was pretty much nowhere to hide other than just a handful of commodities like that. And so people are feeling a lot of pain. And and now the discussion has seemed to go in a way that I haven't seen very much of lately into extreme pessimism. And everybody is now an amateur macroeconomist. And so my main takeaway from all this, and the thing that I really want to talk about today is just the futility of trying to forecast the next recession. It's not possible and it's not really productive. And I guess we should start with with why. And I, this gets back to what I mostly say when people inevitably ask me coming out of the 4th of July holiday, I got this several times. Well, do you think we're going into a recession? And my first answer to that question is is always yes, a hundred percent. And people say, you know, oh wow, really? I kind of stole this from a friend of mine, but yeah, it's like, well, we're definitely going into a recession. I just don't know when. And then they kind of roll their eyes or whatever. But it's true. We don't know when. I don't know when. You don't know when. So if you just kind of release yourself from that false feeling of control, it starts to help. The second question is, who cares? And I mean that even more sincerely. It's a very arbitrary definition that's applied by the National Bureau of Economic Research, even it only applies in hindsight. It doesn't apply in real time. It doesn't apply in advance, certainly. 
And markets are by definition going to be forward-looking in these scenarios and be months or even years ahead of whatever's actually happening in the real world. So if we're in a recession right now, which I kind of doubt, uh, it, it doesn't really matter because what you should be looking at and what you should be caring about going forward is is what your business is going to do, right? So what should you care about? Balance sheets, enormously important in this environment, as always. And it may be too late if your balance sheet's not good, by the way, but they they matter. Business models, you know, what are your margins? What's your operating leverage like? What kind of flexibility do you have to scale up and scale down as the world changes around you? What's the outlook for your individual business, your individual industry? That's the kind of stuff that matters today. It matters just as much today as it mattered six months ago and six years ago and 16 years ago. It's just instead we're sitting here talking about all of these macroeconomic factors. And, and a couple of things really grabbed me when, when I started looking into this a little bit. The Michigan Confidence of Consumer or Michigan Survey of Consumer Confidence came out recently, and it was basically at the all-time lows. That, that survey's run pretty consistently since the 1950s. The methodology is pretty robust; it hasn't really changed. And consumers in that survey are at their most pessimistic since the 1950s. And you think about some of the things that have changed, that have happened, and changed in that 70-plus years, and it's it's kind of eye-opening that this really would be the worst time ever. But if you dig into it a little more, that's not all that meaningful of a data point. If you look at the consumer board survey, which asked people a slightly different question about how they feel in present situation, in the present day circumstances versus their expectations, the present day circumstances, even going back into May, so not that long ago, five or six weeks ago, uh, were pretty good. They were actually quite high and, and reasonably optimistic, so to speak. But the expectations were in the toilet. They were very much aligned with prior periods of nasty, negative uh, expectations about the future. Surprisingly, actually, the some of the lows in those expectations were in 2010 and 2011, well after the financial crisis, but also coinciding with prior recessions and prior periods of massive economic turmoil. And so it does get into this question of, are we going to talk ourselves into a recession here? Because forget about the Fed, and, and we'll come back to the Fed later, I'm sure. But if consumers start talking themselves into this pessimism and really getting worked up in a lather about how bad everything is, they may eventually cut back on some of the economic activity that would help avert a recession. There's this you know, all-powerful idea of reflexivity in economies and financial markets, and that's that's very... That's very, very real. And I don't know what the answer to that is going to be. But what I would say is that we should watch what people are doing and not what they're saying. And I think anybody that participates in the real world, anybody who's traveling this summer, uh, anyone who's going to work this summer, anyone who's spending money this summer is acting quite a bit more optimistically than those expectations being way down in the toilet would imply. So I think that's point number one. Point number two is just that you can't forecast this stuff very well. If you could have, you wouldn't be in this situation. You wouldn't be talking about it. You'd be on your own private island somewhere because you'd be the world's greatest macro fund manager. As an example of that, the Wall Street Journal runs a very uh, good survey of economists and, and good in air quotes there. It's a good survey. The results aren't so useful. Uh, and there's in the most recent month, that would be June of 2022, the economists they surveyed had an aggregate probability of recession within 12 months of 44%. And that's pretty high historically. And the problem with that is that it was only 18% in January. And obviously, if that forecast had a whole lot of value, 
six months ago would have been a nice time to know that everything was about to go in the dumps, right? And this risk of an infl- of a recession would would tick up. That'd be that'd be really helpful. But unfortunately, that's just not not how stuff like that works. So point number two is that it would be very helpful, I think, for almost everyone to just ignore this whole conversation and get back to focusing on the things that they can actually analyze, actually predict, potentially things that they can actually control and not spend so much time getting choked up in what's going on in in the macro economy. And so, uh, Elliot, I'll turn it over to you at that point, because I know you had a couple of twists on this that you wanted to talk about. Yeah, no, I think this is a really important conversation because um, suddenly a lot of people who were saying stuff like I'm a long-term investor are very concerned with, are we going into a recession is the foremost concern. And, you know, I think this happens every time markets hit a panic and you start seeing these um, indicators like um, composite indices of leading economic indicators that are forecasting a recession. And lo and behold, like the S&P is one of the uh, inputs into that. So there's kind of like a reflexive, uh, circular logic to it all. Not even, not reflexive. I mean, specifically circular logic to it all. And yeah, it was the worst first half for the S and P since 1970. So things clearly, uh, don't look optimistic if you're using the stock market as your, uh, barometer, right? It's a way to check the temperature of things out there. And, uh, the temperature is not so hot right now. Um, and, you know, you got to take a step back and think of a few things. First off, in the post-World War II period, we've had a recession every six years. And that had formerly been every four years before this very long expansion uh, out of the GFC, which was a tepid expansion, but it was a prolonged expansion. So, you know, when you hear things like uh, famous people saying, and there were at least a handful very recently who said exactly this, we're going to have a recession in the next two years. Effectively, what they're telling you is there's a 50-50 chance of a recession at any point in time, which should be your reality in a lot of respects as an investor. Recessions do happen. Now, one framework that I'd been introduced to uh, during the GFC that I found very helpful, it was put out there by Bridgewater uh, even before the financial crisis began, but uh, this notion that there are two kinds of recessions in the U.S. economy. There are the normal recession, which is inflation gets too hot as a expansion gets long in the tooth and the Fed raises interest rates in an effort to stomp inflation. And therefore, you have a slowdown in demand. And then the Fed starts cutting rates and you're out of the recession. The other kind of recession is a very different beast. And it's a debt deleveraging, where it's not so much alone the Fed raising interest rates. It's that the private sector, whether it be the financials, corporate, or um, households, end up with a way extended balance sheet. And the balance sheet of the private sector has to be reduced, pulling economic activity down with it. And a lot of people out there right now are saying things like, you know, are, are as gloomy as they were in the depths of the financial crisis. Meanwhile, I think there are few instances where it's as clear as this that we are in the standard vanilla kind of recession. The Fed is stomping inflation. And Powell was somewhat explicit, more so recently than he had been before, that they're willing to accept a recession if that's a consequence of ensuring their credibility 
on inflation. And meanwhile, private sector balance sheets from the financial sector to the corporate to the household are in the best shape they've been in our lifetime. There's actually ample firepower. Um, so at the end of the day, when you think about it, uh, I think, you know, you could ask the question, are we going to have a recession? Sure, it's a fun academic set exercise. It's not something that you should necessarily be investing around. And I think secondarily, you should be like, you know, so if we do have a recession, what are the pain points? What are the risks? Like, what's the worst that could happen in a recession? Are there going to be areas where there are meaningful impairments, where, you know, something like AIG or Citigroup are still not back to where they'd been before the financial crisis because of what the nature of that crisis actually was? And I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm going to be wrong about something else in a, to a great degree again, but I, I don't think this is the kind of setup where we're facing um, the bad kind of recession. The Fed has way more tools at this juncture to deal with inflation, with the only question being their willingness to do so. And their willingness seems quite high. Uh, you could critique them for being a little late to react and all, but they do seem quite willing to put themselves out there in an effort to stop inflation. And so what happens, you know, eventually uh, they'll push their tools as far as they can until inflation's no longer there and they'll let uh, expansion resume. That's very different beast than having to pull out a whole new toolkit of alphabet letters to fight uh, deflation and prevent the economy from falling off the abyss as we'd been in. So, you know, when you think about what this means from a company specific level, it's like, okay, is demand being destroyed at these companies or is it being deferred? Is demand going to be uh, resuming once we eventually get back to a more normal basis? And are valuations reasonable enough in the places I'm looking? And are they reasonable enough if the next, uh, you know, the average rate over the next cycle is going to be higher than the last because the last cycle was pretty damn unique? And speaking of the last cycle, I don't know if you want to call COVID a cycle or not, but we've had a really compressed, really accelerated cycle. And COVID was one of the most unique economic environments we've ever been in. And I still am of the belief that we're dealing with a lot of the cross currents that are just a consequence. I, I, I kind of view this period right now as like the um, analogous to post-World War II when the troops came home and you have all these like um, whipsaw effects in uh, you know, a lot of people needed new homes. There was a lot of demand for things that hadn't been demanded in a long time. Um, and you just don't know what a normal balance is. And that's challenging, but it's not like destructive in the same way that debt deflations are. Um, so these are some of the things I've been thinking about. And one of the other thoughts I'd throw out there on this is I'd seen a lot of people throwing around this chart lately of um, gross domestic purchases. And they'll show something like, you know, 2010 through now. And it looks like, and I'll share this chart just so you can get a visual. It looks like we have this massive overshoot um, right now, if you go from 2010 or 2012 through today uh, in gross domestic purchases. And you might ask, like, did things get way, way, way too hot? Uh, alternatively, you could go back, you know, 30 years and see that actually we really just reverted back to the level that we would have been at had we not had this phrase 
secular stagnation coming out of the GFC. And so one of the other questions that I think is worth asking, not not just uh, that I think is even more worth asking than whether we're in a recession is, you know, had we stimulated differently and faster out of the crisis, might we not have had a secular stagnation conversation for a decade? And might we now be dealing with the fact that we've underinvested in supply for a decade now that we're getting back to what could be normal levels of demand? And depending on how you view these things, the macro consequences would be very different. And at the end of the day, just to throw this all away, I prefer to just look at the bottom of the fundamentals at my companies and think about them. Uh, what their exposure is to cyclicality or not, like some portion of them are, some portion of them aren't, and what it looks like smooth through a cycle, and what um, you know their core proposition uh, to their customers looks like, both in a adverse environment and a more constructive one. So, anyway, those are some of my thoughts here. Yeah, I there's a bunch of great points in there, but one thing that I think is worth revisiting and highlighting that I should have brought up too was that demand during COVID was not just destroyed. And I think we all agree that it was destroyed. When you have a bunch of businesses shut down and a bunch of people sitting at home when they would otherwise not want to be sitting at home, that destroys part of the economy and it takes time to come back. And then on top of that, you had a whole bunch of demand that was pulled forward because of the response to COVID. And so the, the two obvious answers there are that one, you know, we're still working through COVID just because it's been a couple of years and people may not be, you know, in the same situation from a medical standpoint anymore with the risks of COVID. The economic fallout is still very real and is still being digested. And number two is that I just don't understand the obsession with Fed bashing in this whole thing as well, because I think the more time you spend fixated on what the Fed did or didn't do or should have done, the less able you are to just accept the world as it is. So I'm always trying to be aware of the macro situation. I'm just agnostic about what's going to happen because I know I can't forecast it very accurately and neither can you. And yet a huge chunk of the discussion that I hear in person, that I see on Twitter, that I read in the financial media tends to take this view of kind of a disapproving view of like, well, the Fed should have done this or the Fed should have known better. And it's just not valid in my view, and it's not productive. So I think if you take it from those two lens lenses that we're still working off this post-COVID hangover and that of course it's going to be messy and of course it's going to be difficult, then you reset your expectations to something more normal. And if you get away from this Fed bashing thing, that'll that'll help a lot too. The last piece of the puzzle then that I'm still trying to fill in, which is way more interesting to me, is that, okay, here we are. What are asset prices implying? And so, you know, it's interesting to me that the 10-year has backed all the way up from three and a half almost just under to about 2.9 as of this recording. And oil's fallen back under 100. And Yet and and so that's that's applying one set of things. You're looking at other things, you know, discounted future expectations in public equities or private assets, real estate, and whatever. I don't see that much. I don't think there's been all that much for selling in most assets yet. And I think you've just kind of been similar to my you know theory of demand destruction and and demand being pulled forward in the greater economy. I think you're still just working off a period of pretty crazy speculation in excess at this point. I don't see a ton of great businesses being given away for a song right now. I don't see a ton of companies that have good businesses, but bad balance sheets being forced into bankruptcy yet. 
I don't see a lot of assets being sold purely out of fear. Now there are pockets where that's true, but it's not anywhere near as true as it was, you know, in the financial crisis or even after 9/11 or in the dot com bust or uh, you know, certainly this has no comparison whatsoever to prior really nasty recessions like in the 1970s. So I, I, I don't know. Like, I again, it leaves me agnostic to say that, yeah, this was a really bad first half. Yes, there's a very clear and present danger of a recession right now, but I'm not so sure that asset prices fully reflect all the bad and none of the good. I think in a lot of cases, the glass is still half full, at least. What do you guys think? Yeah, I guess I'll jump in with with a few thoughts. And, and first of all, I really have no idea on on the macro whether we are in a recession or not. I think it even helps just to think about what is a recession because are we talking about nominal GDP contracting or real GDP contracting? And I think probably real, um, real GDP. And if that's the case, then it's really hard not to get into a recession with inflation where it's at because that would mean you know if inflation's running in the mid to high single digits we'd have to have nominal gdp growth of at least that much and uh that's very difficult so i think we are probably kind of in a in a scenario where uh gdp nominal gdp is just going to grow less than inflation potentially and um so technically that's a that's a recession i guess but it's very different than in the past where maybe nominal gdp also contracts and i don't really think that's in the cards with inflation where it's where it is right now and i i, I think i'm more in the camp that we're getting close to inflation being Im- embedded um, in the economy and becoming kind of systemic. I don't think the Fed is going to have an easy time getting rid of it completely because I think we're starting to get into this wage price spiral a little bit. And um, and so, you know, the question is, what do you do as an investor um, if that's the case? And again, just a very basic reminder that equities are priced in nominal terms. So, it doesn't matter if they decline in real terms. Um, you're going to be worse off being in cash or, you know, God forbid, shorting stuff. Um, if we're going to have inflation, I think um, equities over time are an inflation hedge. Now, maybe there are better ones, but I'd much rather be in equities than in cash or certainly in bonds. I think also uh, I've seen a lot of commentators kind of. You know, say, well, you know, if we're going into a recession, bonds have always performed well in a recession. Well, always may not continue to be what's going to actually happen in the future. You know, we've also never had bonds perform so poorly, I think, as they've done year to date. And again, that's just a function of inflation. So if we have a recession in real GDP terms, but inflation is still running in the mid-single digits or something like that, you're not going to do well in bonds, I don't think. And so, you know, I'm looking at equities, obviously companies with pricing power, but also um, still commodity-based businesses um, where I feel like that cycle, if you look, if you zoom out and look at some of those charts of, um, you know, commodities versus the S&P and so forth, 
um, that whole cycle hasn't even really gotten started yet. Now, maybe you can take out oil. I'm talking more about metals. Um, and if you want to kind of invest in a growth uh, style in that sector, I think there's metals that are going to be key to the um, EV future, let's say, electric vehicles that are going to be in short supply over the next decade. And maybe that's a good place to look. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, and I, I will completely agree, by the way, just because, quote, bonds have always worked in recessions or at any other time is not a good reason to own them for sure. <laughs> yeah. I think I saw something like we've never had the fed uh, hike rates with the S and P down 20%, which has consequences for bonds when you're uh, talking about recession too. Like we have not really been in a recession with ongoing aggressive hikes. So, you know, this is one of the most unique epics of time. And I think, if anything, the last two years have proven rip up all scripts of historical precedents and saying it hasn't happened, therefore it won't happen. Um, that's just not a good way to look at the world. Uh, I do think there are areas, uh, pockets of the market. Um, I think I saw um, that there are more uh, net nets now than even at the 2008 bottom, for example. I think that um, might be true. I was reading that as well, but isn't that all the biotechs? I was Hey, they're more in biotech about than ever. But yeah, I mean, there are interesting things going on, you know, and uh I've spoken to a bunch of people in the sector in biotech and they're like, yeah, there were a lot of projects that got funding that never should have gotten funding. Exactly. But just recently, there was a biotech that fits that bill who had a group of investors come after them. They sold their one asset for uh, an amount equivalent to their market cap. So they were trading for less than their cash, sold their one asset for their market cap, and they're going to distribute everything to their shareholders. And that's like, I think it, it was up like 400% from where it was immediately preceding that move. Um, so hey, just because it's biotech for... and just because they have cash doesn't mean that there isn't an impetus from people out there to make sure that shareholders get what they're entitled to out of it. Oh. Fair enough. This is I was not just saying, ad, I'm not advocating for people to go hunting in a space where they have no familiarity. Just saying that, like, right. you know, at a certain point, price becomes a catalyst in and of itself. Oh, it does. Yeah. I was just the biotech thing stands out, I think, because so many of them are money losing and in preclinical or early clinical trials. And it's just really tough. So I think it's it's a little different for somebody who's not an you know, a deep, deep biotech expert to jump in and look there as opposed to a, you know, old, old economy, industrial business that's trading below net cash, right? Where you could actually say, and look, the, I'll, whoever it was that agreed to sell their asset and liquidate and return capital to shareholders, that's a rare win for, for good governance if that was what actually happened. So I, well, it wasn't be more purely by choice, right? It was well, right, but non-biotech specialists, uh, non-biotech. Right people coming in and saying like, Hey, we see an opportunity here. Right. 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 Um, and the other thing I wanted to ask about Elliot is in this world of, of not debt deleveraging, don't you think I'm arguing the other side a little bit now for, if I was a little bit pessimistic earlier, if, if you're correct, which I think you almost certainly are, that this is not going to be a story of a ton of debt deleveraging, driving the situation that that's almost a good thing. I think as you look at basically every balance sheet other than state, local, and federal, things are in pretty good shape. And, and even corporate profits, let alone corporate balance sheets, are in pretty good shape. And consumer balance sheets are in 
pretty good shape. So that, that should be a positive, right? And state and local got a lot better. It's actually pretty damn surprisingly it's a lot good. better. That's true. Yeah. Bizarrely so. I mean, I'm speaking here from what had formerly been known as the second worst state in the country in terms of our balance sheet in Connecticut after Illinois. Oh, we're, we we cover some good states here, Phil. Um, yeah, and, and even uh, Illinois got their credit rating got upgraded during this. Yeah, cycle, and right? Connecticut has a surplus yeah. that we're trying to figure out what to do with, and our governor is going to pass the largest tax cut in the state's history alongside a major capital investment in our schools. Right. So the federal is the one remaining problem, and they get paid taxes in nominal, not real terms. So. You know, as much as inflation has been a problem, it's uh, going to take care of the one remaining uh, problem balance sheet out there. And by the way, you just don't need the federal balance sheet to patch the problem now that the private sector is repaired. It's an interesting spot. I don't know. There, there hasn't really been this kind of setup um, in the past. And I, I, I don't want to minimize the fact that especially rising gas prices have a big impact on the people least capable of dealing with that uh, strain. But the the silver lining is that strain is a fraction of what, what it was even in 08 because vehicles are far more efficient. And, um, you know, in general, the economy is in a lot better shape than it was back then. So maybe it just doesn't sting the same way Though it's really painful and it absolutely flows through um, to consumer sentiment and it does get people to change some of their habits. Uh, But I think to the extent that oil rises persistently, I've been one of those people who believe it's more deflationary and aggregate for the economy than inflationary. Because while it flows through the price of some goods, it sucks the air out of a a lot of other parts of the system. So it kind of takes care of itself in some ways. It does. And I I agree. I think there's just so many different forces working against each other right now, inflationary and deflationary and stimulative and depressive or tightening and easing easing almost at the same time that it's really, really hard to say with much confidence where you're going to be on that you know, outcome in the next even six months, right? I think it'll be hilarious to come back and listen to this in just six months. Let's just say at the end of the year, we revisit this and it'll be kind of more whiplash, I would expect, right? Yeah, I'm totally embarrassed by some things I've said in the last six months and six months ago, 18 months ago. And I think it's just one of those environments where things have happened really fast. And anytime something's looked obvious, it's exactly when... um you know, it just absolutely reverses. It makes everyone look like a fool. And one of the things I'd add to your core points about recession at the top, whether it's worth predicting or not, um, typically, you know, the thing that you fear most, it, it actually becomes less likely to happen because people start taking behaviors that could prevent its occurrence in advance. Though recessions could be a little different in that sense. Um, you know, I was thinking more about the European crisis, like, you know, uh, it increases your resolve to do something when things get bad. Recessions could be a little self-fulfilling prophecy if everyone pulls back at the same time, but there's no sign that that's actually happening. They're just saying they are, but their stated and revealed preferences are quite different so far. And um, people by and large, uh, you know, I, I, I do think the unknown is a lot's been given up over the last couple of years. 
And I'm not sure people are willing to change certain parts of their behavior, even if there is some sort of like economic consideration to it right now. Um, I I think that's kind of showing up in travel. Um, And, you know, I I think um, we're still yet to, where I live, things are back to normal in a, in a way that had not been the case even just three months ago. Um, and that has consequences too, uh, for the economy. Some of this COVID demand that had been deferred or destroyed, it's, it's coming back in different ways. So who knows? I think that's my only conclusion of everything these days. Yeah. Who knows is a, is a good answer. And that's why I just have to keep defaulting back to, what, what are the easier games that I can play? And a, and a far easier game is to say, all right, here's a business that I can understand. Here's an asset that I can value and what sort of expectations are priced into it, right? And if you're, took, if you're talking about a company that produces oil and the price of oil is at you know, $20 a barrel, that's a much different calculation than when it's at $100 a barrel. And the same applies to whatever your company is selling or doing. And so that's the... The game is trying to figure that out. And uh, like I said, I'm hopeful. I, I think we're probably getting to a point where some asset prices are starting to get some really, really dour, pessimistic assumptions priced in, but I don't I don't see a ton of them. I don't I particularly don't see it in a lot of bond prices yet. I mean, we're getting there in some stuff. Some preferreds, I think, are a little more interesting, but it's all relative, right? I mean, it's really all just an interest rate bet at this point, I think, right? Yeah, I was going to say, if you believe the 10-year peak is in, then some of this stuff looks pretty juicy. If you think that we're going to have another push, well, it's pretty different. But then there's like, I don't know, if if you think about the typical insurance company or the typical endowment for the last uh, 14 years or so, it's been really tough to find the credit side to match your uh, cost of capital, to match what you need um return wise and suddenly you are given this environment where in uh 10 year treasuries you could get pretty damn close to the discount rate you'd finally accept it as your reality right um so there should be a, a kind of bid hoovering up uh those kinds of yields I, I don't know i mean that's something that i think should really matter too a lot of this comes down to flows and what's, what the needs are of the incremental buyer. Um, that's not necessarily sanguine for equities uh, per se, and it probably was something uh, leading to some of the hurt over the last couple of months. But then there is a re- that is a reflexivity where if the, the peak is in in rates, you start thinking a little differently about what your discount rate is in stocks. And yeah, hopefully, though, I mean, to get back to the point on underwriting, though, I, I, I'd i hope and I'd think, I mean, at least I was doing it personally. I was still working with like a 10 whack on most companies thinking like someday rates will be normalized. And I don't want to assume that this environment lasts forever. Um, even if some things got a, a little out of hand because of it, I think that should be uh, the right way to to approach valuation. Like these things are cyclical. So when rates are at zero and you know they're not going lower. And the economy is expanding. You should assume something that's a little different than than that as your uh, risk free rate. Yeah, I I totally agree on that. And another way to kind of frame that is when I've had a few people ask me, you know, what do you think? Are we going into a recession, or is there going to be a recession or an recession? I one way to answer it is to say, well, let's say we're in a recession, or a recession is going to start any minute now. What would you do? 
What would you do differently? And when it's posed to me, I say absolutely nothing, right? I mean, I nothing I own is predicated on avoiding or weathering a recession or, you know, having a recession or anything else, right? I mean, it's just it, recessions happen, right? There's nothing that can be avoided along the way. Sooner or later, bad stuff's going to happen and recessions included. And so I don't wish for recessions, even though they can be really healthy and cleansing in terms of giving businesses and economies a period of reset. You certainly don't want the human consequences that come with it when people lose their jobs and their lives get disrupted and their feelings of economic and real and perceived economic insecurity go up. But nothing grows to the sky. There's no such thing as you know, endless growth. It's easy all the time with no pain. So I, I just sort of plan for this to happen sooner or later. And if if you could give me perfect insight as to what was going to happen, recession, yes, no, over the next six months or six years, I wouldn't be doing anything differently today. And I think that is a good thing. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, you cannot sit sit this out or try to sit it out because I think if you do, what's going to happen is you, even if the market does go down, let's say from here, uh, you're very likely to miss uh, the point of getting back in, uh, just like it happened for a lot of people back in March 2020. I think, you know, or at least some people kind of got out of the market saying, oh, I'll get back in when such and such happens. And, uh, you know, the rebound was just uh, so swift that a lot of them had to get back in a lot higher. So basically they ended up selling low and buying high. And I think that can happen very easily if you're trying to time uh, recessions because, you know, stocks are going to start out performing usually, I think, way before a recession is is really finished. Um, yeah, they, they bottom ahead. commensurate with the start of a recession. Right. So you're really um, in, in a very tough bind if you're trying to time the market like that. So I wouldn't even try it. And especially not if we have a situation like now where inflation is there, because then you are really losing. I mean, you're if you're holding cash, just you know, don't look at it as a 0% return and it's good when stocks are volatile. No, you are losing 5% or whatever it is annually by sitting in cash. And so that's your cost plus missing out on getting back into equities. It's just not worth it. And um, and so to me, it's it's very clear that basically um, there's very lo- little utility to trying to time a recession. Now, what you can do is maybe go pick on some bargains that are available because of this huge fear of a recession. And, and I think the home builders are maybe a good place to look right now. A lot of them are, are quite cheap. Um, you know, so there's going to be opportunities, but I feel like you should go on offense uh, when when that's available. You know, it's funny you mentioned the home builders because as of today, there is a headline on Bloomberg that it was the sharpest plunge in the 30-year mortgage rate since 2008. So... You know, just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the sharpest rise, but um, that sort of thing could bring a lot of people back into the housing market quite quickly. And 
if you really believe the millennials are finally buying houses, uh, it's not a consideration about the perfect price. It's a consideration about situation in life. And, um, you know, obviously, uh, where rates were just a, even a couple of weeks ago made it far more challenging. Um, though they weren't exactly above six for long enough for people who hadn't had pre-approvals with rate locks and people today who'd come back in to have to deal with it. So sure, you're not going to get refis, but I, I, I too find that uh, area very interesting. Um, not invested in it just yet, but I do think it makes a lot of sense and there's some strong uh, tailwinds behind it. Well, you've we've talked about housing on here, so hopefully my biases are pretty well known at this point on that topic. But I would just say too, I think housing is a good microcosm of some larger issues right now. And I think the, the discussion there is being almost entirely driven by what's next instead of what things are worth or what makes the most sense. And so I spend relatively little of my time trying to figure out what's next. In other words, you know, where exactly is the 30-year mortgage rate going to settle out or interest rates or housing demand or supply chain problems or whatever, and try to take a step back to look at where things are going to be in two or three or five years and you know, then drill into individual markets or individual businesses and try to figure out what's going on there. And when you start to do that, it becomes a completely different discussion. Yeah. And I think also just having a long-term mindset is is key here. You know, if you get really short-term oriented, you're going to start trying to make these calls and you're probably going to make a lot more mistakes. Um, I think if you look at it long-term, um, you know, there's a need for housing, um, the well-managed, you know, home builders with good business models that are well-run, if they're available now at a, at a cheap price because of these fears, as a long-term investor, that could be potentially interesting. So I, I think it's just also the, the mindset of a long-term investor that's going to just help you avoid mistakes and potentially pick some good winners. That's a great point, John, because I think the average, and uh, I'm going to use the word investor here with air quotes, shortens their time frame when things get rocky in markets. And if you're in a position to be someone to lengthen your time frame, that's exactly what you want to be doing when everyone else is shortening their time frame. I mean, just the very nature of asking the question, are we in a recession, is shortening a time frame. Because the, the, the two guarantees in investing are there will be times where we're in recession and there will be times where we get out of recession. So at some point, we're not going to be in a recession and valuations are going to be back to what they would be outside of a recession. And so you know, that's part of the, uh, the game side of it all making sure you're in a position to keep your head and, and, and keep uh, a long time frame, even when things hit the fan. Agreed. Yeah. And, and I'll just mention, I think another kind of mindset to have in this current period, for me anyway, that helps me a lot is just not to think about where I'm, am I going to make the most money or what's the next good thing to buy, but simply how do I preserve my purchasing power over the next several years? you know, five to 10 years, let's say. And that makes you think differently. If you're not thinking, you know, where can I get the next big capital gain? But simply, you know, how do I maintain my purchasing power? You're going to start looking at, okay, what businesses can actually raise prices? 
have solid business models? Um, what other assets are going to give me that? You're quickly probably going to say no to bonds uh, or holding cash for that matter. Maybe hold a little bit of cash just as optionality, but not a lot. And um, and so you know, this is also a time when I feel like you shouldn't necessarily be asking kind of where can I get the biggest returns, but simply how can I you know still be okay in five to ten years if uh, if inflation you know doesn't go away completely. Yeah, I, I think you have to plan on it not going away completely. Like you said earlier, I think expectations become embedded. It's become a huge cultural talking point over the last six to mostly the last six months. And I agree, I don't think that's going to go away easily, even if interest rates do stamp out financial inflation. I think there's always been areas and pockets of lurking inflation, and that's not going to go away anytime soon. And you have to be able to plan for that and manage around it. Yeah. And again, no macro, big macro analysis here, but, you know, in, in, interest rates are just one tool. I mean, you look at the Fed balance sheet, I believe it's still expanding. And so, you know, we're just going to have to see where this all shakes out. Um, but I feel good kind of feeling protected from, a, from a, an inflation standpoint. Okay. Well, thank you so much, uh, Phil and Elliot. Great discussion. And uh, thanks everyone for listening as well. We'll talk to you uh, fairly soon, although I think we might take a little summer break here um, and uh, we'll let you all know exactly what that's going to look like uh, via Twitter. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.